Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. At a time when digital transformation is a top priority across the globe, it's important to stay on top of emerging technologies, business trends, and strategies. VMware's Partnership Perspectives podcast brings together top global business executives, technologists, and industry analysts to share insights, perspectives, and inspiration for top-of-mind topics. Hosted by VMware's Kathleen Tandy, we'll discuss stories around organizations' challenges and successes, as well as strategies for moving their businesses forward. Guests include Oracle, Lumen, ComDivision, IDC, Galaxy, and more. Have a listen. For 40 years, Michael Myers has haunted this town. He is the essence of evil, and evil dies tonight. Halloween Kills, rated R, under 17, not admit without parent, in theaters and streaming only on Peacock now. It's better to take ownership of your thoughts and desires than feeling regret later in your life. You are listening to The Affiliates, a podcast that features career journeys of individuals that are changing the world every single day. My name is Alok Rathod, and I'm a film producer best known for projects such as Choice and The Doorbell. I'm sitting down with leaders to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and how to make an impact. On today's episode, we are featuring Dr. Jingning Ao, who is working on her second PhD in strategy at the University of Pittsburgh. One of Jingning's life dreams is to visit outer space someday. perhaps through her research on strategic communication in space tourism and industrialization while also making this dream come true for more space enthusiasts jingning also holds three certificates from harvard business school online still a 100% dog person jingning loves her recently adopted cat kip jingning lives in pittsburgh pennsylvania and is ready for new adventures when she secures a tenure track assistant professor position at a research university so sit back relax and enjoy the exciting journey of Dr. Jingning Ao. Hi Jingning, how are you? Hi Alok, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I'm just excited to be able to finally go to India in 5 days and spend some time with my family. Yes. Right. Okay. Now, of course, you know, uh we've been you know friends for quite some time i have seen uh, your evolution over the years you've been on my other podcast so i just thought that okay let me dive deep a little bit in your personality uh so you know that brings us uh on the afflatus so my first question to you is um why is research important and what sparked your interest in pursuing research as a career path I actually appreciate that you recognize and acknowledge what I'm doing is on a career path. You know, um I have people uh commented on me as a career student that being a student has been my career. But that person is right about one thing is that um being a researcher is to prepare yourself to be a student forever because you have to constantly learn new theories, new methodologies. and different perspectives. So for me, um 
doing research or being a scholar is simply a profession choice. Uh, I see education as a tunnel that we come through it um, and we are channeled toward different directions. I mean, Alok, you went through your undergraduate and a master's level education. Uh, then you decide to go for business in media, including podcasts and films. Um, as to me, I, I just simply love learning and I'm just curious about a lot of things. Um, I enjoy reading a lot. And more importantly, writing is something that attracts my attention since I was a kid. So academia turns out to be one of the right places for me. Uh, easy to say that, but making any career choice for me and for you involves lots of struggle and self-discovery. So it is not easy. Um, so that is my answer to the second part of your question. Um, in terms of why research is important, I mean, I'm a junior scholar. So for me, uh, research can be really important for two reasons. Um, personally, research is to find your voice about the truth of the world. And take it broadly, uh, research is a platform to communicate scientifically about what you have discovered to the rest of the world with the hope that maybe this piece of knowledge can change the way people think and eventually inspire them to do something differently. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. I think, you know, that's very well put. And I agree that, uh, you know, sometimes people think that, oh, you know, research as a career option uh, or as or academia is simply like a way to sort of dodge working in real world and you know people sort of use that as an excuse to not uh, move ahead in their career or confront difficult problems that arise when you're looking for a job and things as such but i'll i'll give you a little example of how you know i saw research as to be like how it came to be seen in my perspective as a serious thing is that uh when I was back home in India and I was, you know, studying uh, uh, economics in my 11th grade and 12th grade. So that's uh, that's called junior college in Mumbai, uh, which is essentially just preparing you for grad school. Uh, oh, that's cool. Sorry, undergrad, not grad. Uh, so, yeah, they, so 11th grade and 12th grade, uh, which is still technically high school here, uh, you are essentially considered as a junior college student in India, uh, in Mumbai specifically. Uh, but in 11th and 12th standard, I studied uh, something called the Porter's Five Forces model. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I kept going back, uh, you know, even until I finished my grad school. And so you read about these things and you accept them as like facts, you know, it's a generally accepted principles and uh, you just assume that it's true and correct. But when I saw the actual person like Michael Porter talking at Harvard Healthcare Conference in, I think, 2016, that's when I realized that, oh, this has been such a huge journey of like, you know, this person doing this research, putting this into his research paper and it going on all these years to be finally accepted as one of the models to assess the industry, like the competitive forces in the industry. So it's a huge journey. It doesn't happen overnight. You're putting in so much of effort and resources behind it. And then when you uncover something that otherwise would not be a known thing, becomes mm -hmm. so obvious and so accepted that you don't question it after a point of time. 
right and exactly. that's i understood that full circle that's when i realized oh okay you know research is important like all the body of knowledge that is out there is the result of research that is conducted and you know how the peer review journals come into picture and um, you know either validate or invalidate it for whatever reasons so it's that so no i i really respect people who work in research and academia because they are adding more and more knowledge to the world uh, which helps us lead better lives and you know uh, do better things well said yeah thank you <laughs> so it's that uh, now of course uh, you know a quick look at your resume and it shows all the merit awards that you have won over the years you have been a rockstar student all your life and so uh, there's this uh, notion at least where i come from in india is that okay only intelligent people uh, can be researchers or you know or people who are academically strong only they can pursue research uh, do you think there is truth to that idea or you think research is accessible for everyone Yeah first very nice of you saying that I'm a star student even though I I, I don't really think so yet but <laughs> I, that would be my best wishes um as you mentioned earlier you have observed uh, you have a change of that perception that oh theories and frameworks can be uh, popular overnight but but the more you understand the academia the more you know it's a really long process so like journal publication academia can be a really really exhausting process so scholars need conferences workshops and sometimes applications for uh, research awards and grants as checkpoints to say if the research is right on track and also just to use those checkpoints to motivate oneself to improve the manuscripts so in that sense academia is a career path for I would say curious and hard working people uh, because research is like a marathon and the feedback for scholars usually takes a long time uh, so keeping a daily motivation is a real challenge uh, I I still believe um people can be smart in a million different ways um but but in my career path um persistence and self motivation are invaluable so being a scholar is uh being a professional writer in in another if you put it another way so uh writing is something not come naturally it's a skill takes practice uh and takes time and patience to get better so in that sense that's what i'm thinking not just intelligent um you need to be committed into this career in the first place yes yes and you know you rightly pointed out that um being a researcher in a lot of ways is also being a writer because yes. uh some of the best research papers that i've read have that you know artistic quality of building a nice narrative yet also not compromising on the uh you know uh, the statistics or the quantitative aspect of it where the information that you need the results mm-hmm. of uh, the presentation of your results is still intact but at the same time you feel like you're reading a story rather than you know dry facts stitch together just for the purpose of saying that hey we did our research uh and that that takes time and practice of course you know it doesn't happen overnight i mean you know the idea of even just pursuing a phd program is anywhere between 3 to 5 years depending on you know what kind of yeah, phd exactly. it is uh so that in itself is you know a huge commitment of time so a, a person has to be really sure that can they commit that number of years to 
research in academia and you know you might seem that okay time flies and it goes away quickly but you know mm-hmm. five years is still five years and so there are days when you feel like time is swinging by very quickly and there are days when you feel like ah how why does it take so long to get this thing done you're uh, reading my mind <laughs> yeah i've i've worked with a lot of researchers and i see the amount of paperwork that they have to do uh you know with the irb or without irb you know even the the grants and uh, funding proposals that they have to write uh, i i can see the frustration in their eyes that i'm a researcher i'm supposed to do research and not write this interesting story of like hey research is like this and that and you should support this and uh, but of course i mean you know that's just how it is so we cannot do much about it uh, but yes i think uh, i i see that uh it, it it is a multitude of like it's a combination of a lot of skills that come together for uh, research to be successful and you know make a make a difference uh and so yeah i think uh i believe intelligence is not only in terms of like how many merit awards you have or what is your gpa it's also about how you are able to communicate and understand you know the interdependencies within a discipline and then you know bring forth something that uh you know uh adds a new perspective uh, exactly thinking we always say research is a social enterprise that involves lots of human interaction uh so we not just sit here read papers and write about papers and handle experiments and uh methods more importantly is how you communicate your idea to the broader audience and trying to convince them and you are able to write clearly um, then send to journals and also have an impact on the society eventually so it's really requires multiple skills like you mentioned yeah yeah now you were a space tourism researcher at middle tennessee state university what what sparked your interest in this subject matter why why space tourism Uh yes uh so space tourism and commercialization is one label that I want to build as my scholarly identity. So I must say um I had a great time at the Middle Tennessee State University and my PhD program was in human performance and mainly focused in leisure and tourism. Since I always have the dream of going to space, so when I brought up the idea of actually researching leisure behaviors of astronauts in the International Space Station, my advisor and all professors I know they were super supportive. So I was lucky for that, and because space tourism has the components of space and tourism, so I got to. Present my work at the uh, International Space Station annual conference, as well as the annual conference organized by the Travel and Tourism Association. And just um, this week, earlier this week, the that tourism conference uh, notified me that my work is voted as uh, one of the top three paper for research award. Uh, so that is really uh, make that really makes me happy. <laughs> and by the way. Um, Because of the research in space tourism, I came to the University of Pittsburgh for my second PhD program with the hope that I can uh, support the commercialization of a public space travel from the research perspective, so that one day I earn myself a ticket to go. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and I think uh, you know uh, there's been so much discussion about this, you know, space race. It's considered the new space race, you know. Virgin Atlantic is trying to get into the space race. You know, uh, 
uh, Richard Branson. Uh, of course, here in the US, we have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos yeah, trying to outdo each other. And uh, India is trying to like, you know, have uh, its space program where it's cheaper uh, to produce rockets. And hopefully that could, I guess, be, you know, something that we could partner with commercial space providers in future where, you know, cheap rockets could be something that could be made reusable and so that way there could be a scope for partnership so the mars rover that we launched uh, you know the prime minister claimed and it's true that we were able to make it cheaper than a high budget hollywood film and uh, oh that's so, awesome yeah and so the entire global community lauded the efforts of indian government to create a space vehicle that is still technically strong uh, but on a on a budget that is much uh, cheaper than what it would take other countries to do. Um, so yeah, it's it's it, that's what we did. But I think space tourism is going to be such an interesting uh, topic to discuss in future. So that way you are ahead of the curve that you already had the opportunity to think about the leadership behavior and you know uh, what elements could come into play because exactly. you know, we, we see like the legality of like, if there is a crime that happens on a cruise, then, you know, the once you're outside uh, the city limits, it's the international waters that you are in. And the yep. maritime so, law, that yeah. was my undergraduate. <laughs> yeah, so similarly for space, like, okay, imagine if there is like, you know, a commercial space flight and a crime happens, then like, how how do you determine so that i mean that's the legal part of it of course but the more i think of it the more aspects i you know uncover of like what makes it an interesting area of research uh my my question to you is and it's a quick follow-up question uh jeff bezos of course is going to space right uh so if you are offered a seat with elon musk or jeff bezos to go to the space first would you take it and you know if yes then what 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 are the questions that you'll ask them like just out of curiosity uh you would have like what 10 minutes with them in space uh so what what questions would you ask them you know your questions like the same whenever i present my work people always ask so do you want to go that's like the first thing i've got asked then i thought I told them because I wanted to go. That's why I did the research, right? Um, yeah. So I actually applied for the DRMO program, but I stopped at the step three, I think. So I definitely want to go if there is a chance. I would abandon everything just, just to go um, for that. If, if I'm earned a seat together with Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or both, <laughs> then uh, I think I think I would just bring research to space at, at the same time. Personally, that would be a great experience. Um, uh, communication with those two will be happening after we return because I want to make full use of time being in space. And we're coming back, then you already build a personal relationship with those two guys. So uh, then the conversation can go farther beyond what you just have experienced in space. And then that, that would be a great business opportunity in the future for research as well. Yeah. So 10 minutes is not enough. That's going to be a lifelong bond there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. If I if I am some, I would love to go to space as well. But if I'm able to earn a seat next to one of these uh, two gentlemen, then uh, with, uh, with Jeff Bezos, I'll ask him like, hey, can I have free prime membership? for the rest of my life. <laughs> so that's one. <laughs> With Elon Musk, I'll ask him like, hey, can I have access to like Tesla. free wireless charging? Like I'll buy the car on my own. I just want free oh. access to charging all my life. Uh, 
and so yeah these are the two things i'll ask them uh while i we are in space and then of course we can talk about serious things later on uh but <laughs> yeah i'll just try to like you know negotiate and get some like deal out of it like yeah i'm paying like 200 million dollars already let's say to you know have this time with you you can do a little bit for me uh <laughs> So it's that. See, I, I'm, I'm, I went for like the material thing, and you know, I just completely disregarded science and evolution of humanity because I'm like, okay, what am I getting out of this, <laughs> this thing? Okay, um, now, okay, expanding on my previous question regarding your research in space tourism, what was the hypothesis of your research and the methodology, the methodology that was employed by you? So. Uh, research has generally three approaches, uh, inductive, deductive, and abductive. Uh, hypothesis testing is a typical way to conduct deductive research. So in my current field, um, that is strategic management, hypothesis testing is really common. Uh, for example, one of my current manuscripts studies the relationship between open innovation and R&D performance. And I hypothesize that open innovation through strategic alliances uh, will positively influence the R&D process from the experimentation stage. And I employed a moderation model in Stata with machine learning using Python and R. Uh, but for the work in space tourism, it is inductive. Uh, and I summarize existing work from uh, this research topic. Then I collect data, analyze it using both traditional qualitative techniques and the computational-based text analysis method. So what I did was like through data, uh, I developed the implications to advance astronauts' uh, um, experience seriously for developing space tourism because astronauts are the population of uh, real space travelers and astronauts and space tourists have a lot more in common than we would normally realize. But uh, for the research stream in space tourism, people, scholars will just go ask for normal people, say, okay, here's maybe... Uh, what space could look like, and do you do you want to go? Um, so for me, it's just trying to add more science into that part to know what really space experience should be. Um, so um, I think to other, um, I think from that work, uh, one of the the findings would be uh, space travel experience based on studying astronauts' experience is that. It's dynamic and super positive. And the most important motivation would be the overview effect. And uh, maybe the right title for space tourists in the future should be amateur astronaut. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting designation to earn. And yeah, I didn't know there could be that much overlap between uh you know, astronauts and space tourists. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's that's great, and uh, uh, that's such an important point that you raised. That you know, hypothesis testing could be deductive or inductive. Uh, in finance, like the background that I'm coming from, it could be both. But then the differentiation is like hardly ever. Uh, spoken about or explained like usually you just try to you know have a hypothesis that okay can we reach a certain threshold of sales so can we save so much money by next quarter and then you just do all the regression analysis and you know all mm -hmm. of those things to see whether if there is uh, a relationship and can that be uh, you know changed in some manner to the outcome that we need and uh, yeah i think you know uh, that's that's great that uh, 
you were able to do two different kinds of hypothesis testing in your two different PhD programs. And so, yeah, I think when you do step out in the real world with your research, then you would have the rare designation of having done both kind of them. Uh, so I think, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, I think uh, when it comes to space, uh, people have this excitement, but there's also this risk factor of like, okay, what if something goes wrong? Uh, you know, we managed to get things wrong here in day-to-day -day life. What if something goes wrong when we're in space? Uh, so that's always there. But I mean, as long as, uh, you know, proper precautions are taken, people will always be, you know, inclined to give it a shot. Uh, so it's that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, one funding from the research actually deals with risk and danger because uh, a lot of existing space tourism articles actually talk about how we animate risks, how we manage danger. So I think the data from astronauts um, can be really helpful because uh, it tells us that they are human beings too. They just choose a profession that it can be a little bit different. And then they fully aware of those risks and not feeling panicked or uh, feels like super dangerous that they don't even want to go. For them, it's called a uh, like a self-management about how you're handling danger and risks. So that could be achieved by technology in one hand and uh, training on the other hand. That's why I think space tourists could be called an amateur astronaut because anybody who wants to go to space, not even go to space, when you go skydiving or any extreme activities, you require some level of training. So that is okay to do that. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. When you reach uh, that high level um any person based on the current law, like when you go about 50 miles or something, then you actually earn the title of astronaut. So in that sense, tourists are astronauts. They're just more amateur in that sense. Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, so now, uh, you know, throughout your career, you have uh, educated yourself on regular intervals on business concepts. Uh, have you have you ever considered having your own startup? Very good question, Alok. I am uh, impressed that you actually read my mind. Yes. So the answer is yes. Uh, I always have that thought in my head, but I only told this secret to my husband, Sam. Uh, so you are probably the second person to 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 know this intention. Uh, for me, this startup definitely going to be about space, uh, but. The space industry has federal laws so that, that restrict foreigners, so it can be really tricky to get involved. Um, by the way, I'm a Mongolian minority with Chinese nationality, so considering uh, the recent implicit space race between China and the U.S., so it will be really interesting. Uh, but my, my green card application is still under review. Uh, probably after I get it, I may have uh, some level of freedom to develop this uh, startup idea. Um, here at uh, Pitt, University of Pittsburgh, Pitt, we, we have the best entrepreneurship and uh, competitive strategy scholars in my department. So for now, I just keep getting myself prepared. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, this is this is such an exciting area from a startup perspective because there are so many things that you could do uh you know, that could support the industry and the growth. So for example, you know, as we were talking about, you know, uh, the space uh, passenger or space tourist call, being called amateur 
uh, astronauts, you you could have a startup that you know trains them uh, before they go into space, right? Like you could be uh, a a company that has a facility that trains them of like how to be in the space, what kind of changes your body goes through. And, you know, of course that's going to happen because NASA and, you know, these companies on itself, they cannot handle so many people trying to go to the space. So let's say 20 years down the line, it could be something that, okay, you know, there is a separate Yeah, center. become a contractor to Virgin Galactic or SpaceX or Blue yeah. Origin. Yeah, yeah and- that could happen. If if things don't work out with US or China, when you're trying to work on your space startup, let me know. I'll try to put in a word with Indian Space Ministry and, you know, maybe we can get you on board uh, and uh, have that would you, be wonderful. <laughs> have you uh, come on board and do innovations with India and uh, help India, you know, stay ahead in that uh, space game. So that, that would be fun. Uh, plus, you'll get like, you know, all the amazing Indian food while you're there. So, oh, know. yes. <laughs> Makes me hungry already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love Indian food. Yeah, and uh, I love Indian food as well, but I also love Chinese food. Uh, actually, Chinese is like my go-to cuisine outside of Indian. So I just always... It's, it's funny for me, it's the opposite. I mean, except when I get bored of Chinese food, I usually just go down to a street. There's a great Indian restaurant right here at Pitt. That's like always my favorite. Get lots of lamb with spicy sauce and. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Indian Indian food has a lot of variety. So whether you're a vegetarian or non-vegetarian, you'll find equal number of options. And uh, they both taste wonderful. Yeah, maybe that could be your startup. You know, supplying food for <laughs> space tourists uh, while they are on board using some special vacuum technology that keeps it fresh. Uh, you know even in space. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just throwing these ideas. But, uh, yeah, I think, you. I mean, I could see that you are properly equipped to run a startup, any startup for that matter, uh, because you have, like, a solid understanding of business principles. And uh, it's only about, like, what industry you choose to apply them. And uh, exactly. the moment you do that, I think, you know, you'll be you'll be successful. So, yeah, I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled for whenever you come up with your uh, billion dollar, trillion dollar idea. And yeah, <laughs> if, if there's any way I could help you, then I would love to be a part of it. Um, you already so have great ideas from you. <laughs> People don't know, uh, like a lesser known fact about uh, Jingning is that she actually wrote the script of the first short film I ever directed. And uh, it's 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 something that I still cherish because, you know, when you're just starting out, you need you, you are very unsure whether this is for you or not. So that little help from you, I think, uh, you know, is the reason that I'm still working in media today, because it gave me the confidence that, OK, if I just ask for help and if I have good ideas, people will come along and support me in my endeavor. So, so thank you for that. So if I could be a media professional because of your help, then I'll make sure that you will be a successful entrepreneur because of my help. Uh, not because of my help only, but I'll make sure everything that I could do to bring you closer to success. So it's that. Uh, Have you ever wondered what is it that makes two people fall in love? Is it their physique, personality, wealth, or just their dog? This is exactly why we created Master Dating, a podcast where two absolute strangers go on a blind date on each episode. 
Produced by Ansia Productions, Master Dating is an original concept that explores the dynamics of love and attraction that are rooted in scientific research. Check out the latest episodes to rekindle your belief in true love. Available everywhere you get your podcasts. With Prime, get light bulbs delivered in a day. Edison would be proud. Indeed, I'm proud. Get your everyday essentials delivered fast. Prime changes everything. Do you know how many files your employees have uploaded, downloaded, emailed, airdropped, slacked, or shared via Google Drive today? A lot of that data has left your organization, and you don't even know it. Visit Code42.com to learn how Insider prevents data exfiltration. Now, you published a paper on iceberg business model. Can you shed some light on the idea and some key findings? Yes. Uh, so it was a paper written in Chinese, actually published in a top journal in China. So the research idea was from my internship experience back in the 2013. I was a full-time intern as a business developer at Gronfoss. Uh, that is a Danish company that is also the largest pump manufacturer in the world. So I was asked to visit several district cooling companies uh, and deal with their business development. However, just whenever I draw their business model canvas, right? It's like a popular framework in business school now, the business model canvas. So I use that framework just to draw their models. Then they look exact the same with almost just the same with each other. However, the, the firm performance deferred sharply. So I really wanted to figure it out. So that paper was uh, uh, theoretical and coming from this background. Um, it, it actually suggests that the business model that we can map out easily is only the tip part of an iceberg, the same iceberg metaphor that we are all familiar with. Um, so the majority part of that iceberg is hidden under the water but it is the secret uh, weapon of success in firm performance. So, so what is that under the water part? Uh, what I found is like it's, it's the institutional influences, including like social, culture, uh, legal, cognitive, and other influences that shapes the coordination of a business model. Um, by the way, um, back in that year, uh, some friends actually did not recommend me to go for a PhD because in their eyes, I looked more business and entrepreneur driven than being nerdy or scholarly. But by now I learned that um, you have to be an entrepreneur in order to do top research and publish in top journal. I'm not there yet, but but that is my goal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I see that connection very clearly because, you know, you have to be able to present and you have to be able to talk and, you know, negotiate. Uh, and these are all business skills. These are all entrepreneur skills. Uh, at the same time, you know, you have to tell a story, you have to do your research. So you also need that intelligence and that ability to see connections and communicating them uh so yeah uh, you know you're sort of like a complete uh package in that sense that uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur you'll do justice to that as well and if you want to be a researcher you can use the skills of being an entrepreneur to become a better researcher so i mean you yeah i am yeah I think I will be still deeply embedded in academia but at the same time since uh, research is in the business domain Sometime maybe I can just brought that up and contribute to the space industry. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. And uh, so yeah, I think I think that's 
that's great and uh, i i agree now that i have my own business that there are so many uh things that are not out there in the public uh, that influence uh the choices that you make in business and how uh many people you hire and what kind of work they do and uh it it represents uh it it uh it reflects your personality to the world in the sense that what are the values that you stand for and how do you go about approaching that so it's more in the actions rather than like the pr communication that goes on uh and so you know i i firmly believe in that so every time i post something that is not done by me i make sure that the person gets credit so even if they are an intern they know that their work is recognized and just because uh you know they are at a different level in hierarchy doesn't mean that uh their work is not appreciated or recognized so it's that and yes that, that's mm-hmm. just one aspect there are so many things um so i think you know the term iceberg business model is an apt name for uh the uh, research that you did um so Thank yeah you. I, i need to bring that to the western world like translate <laughs> yeah i think i think you know it will be very useful here because of course you know business model canvas is one thing to like you know see the birds eye view of the you know different aspects of business uh but then how do you model something that is very hard to see or very hard to you know put it quantitatively uh for example the talent of the management team or you know the impact of weather on you know your sales things like that uh so yeah it's it's but it it's one of those fascinating things that you know keeps me going that okay how much more can you uncover within your own business line so that's that's great so now of course i just spoke about like you know you writing the script of the first film that i ever directed what what got you interested in that uh, endeavor because you know it must have seen it must have seem a bit odd right that there is this uh, business group that we are both part of and then there is a request for like someone saying that hey can you can somebody help me write a script for a film <laughs> so what what got you interested in the project in the first place so uh i actually appreciate that you bring it up um since you asked this question if i look back i probably think there will be two major reasons um The first consideration is like what you said about the creative writing, um, like create creative endeavor. Uh, up until now, I realized that uh, being a scholar is uh, is being a professional writer. So back then, I didn't know. I, but I just naturally love opportunities to write about things, and writing has been my interest and a key skill to develop. Um, and and then just uh, in my leisure time, I read a lot of books about writing. such as how to write uh, in academic setting as well as uh, in fiction and non-fiction. Um another reason is uh, you Alok uh because you have been a wonderful person professionally and personally so working with you has always been fun. So I remember uh you when you uh, you posted that idea on the Facebook group of the Harvard Business School online uh so when i saw that post my instinct was like hey that is cool uh maybe i can try and more importantly um when i reviewed my interests you were really open about it so i was and still am impressed by your effective execution of that film yeah yeah thank you for that and i mean it just was such a 
such an interesting story that I always wanted to tell. It's about like, you know, a musician that is uh, very acclaimed, but it's later discovered that he has been faking his deafness. Uh, and he used that as a way to get rich and popular, uh, which is very, you know, un-Japanese way of uh, doing things. And so that's why everybody was shocked. Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted someone who sort of like understood uh, not only the human aspect of it, but also the societal aspect of it. And uh, I just felt that, okay, someone who comes from similar sensibilities or similar region could have, you know, some more nuance to add to that. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be much better than what I would have done on my own. So in that sense, it did save me a lot of embarrassment. But more importantly, it, it signaled to me that, uh, you know, I can always sort of discuss ideas with you, bounce off, uh, you know, things with you. Uh, so yeah, in that sense, uh, this the film actually helped me build a lot of relationship with people uh, in Japan. So when I was there, they were really happy that, hey, you know, you being an Indian person decided to tell a Japanese story. Uh, and oh. what's even more interesting is that it was written by a Chinese person. So it's it's like the whole you know, world came together uh, to make that story happen. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's it her national effort. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Asian, uh, but it was written in the US and shot in the US. So it's like, yeah, it's a global effort that way. Uh, and I have, a, I had a South Korean friend and she was the photographer on set that, okay, you shoot the scenes, I'll do behind the scenes. Uh, so that was fun as well. Uh, so yeah, I in that moment, I felt uh, almost invincible in the sense that, okay, I want to make a film. And despite all the odds, I was able to get a script. I was able to get equipment. I was able to get actors. Uh, and I was mm-hmm. able to find people to work on set. Like there was no set technically, but just people hanging around helping me. So it just gave me so much confidence that, you know, if I choose to pursue my dreams, things will fall in place and people will come around to help me. And that has been the case even all, all these years later, like, you know, I, I have seen that to be true, uh, no matter what is the scale of the project. Uh, so, yeah. I'm, yeah, I I'm, totally hear you. Yeah, so I'm glad that, you know, our paths crossed and you were able to come on board as part of that project. I have another interesting idea, but then we'll talk about that later on. Uh, but So it's it's that. Uh, but no, you've been like a great, great, uh, help and great support uh, all throughout my career ever since we've known each other. Thank you. And you are kind of doing the same thing for me. Um, it's like the book's name called From Zero to One is really the hardest. Uh, but once you, like what you did, you actually directed a film, and then in the way afterwards, you actually have more confidence. And for me, I haven't really had a uh, publication as a top journal but it's like getting there recently but sometimes just feel so much like i've never done this before can i be able to handle that um like doing this podcast is just like reaffirm my my interest and a commitment into research so you actually are helping me getting from that zero to one of course so i appreciate yeah. the opportunity yeah, of course. And uh, I I remember I was supposed to publish an article uh, with a professor that I worked with, with whom I actually wrote a case study at Harvard on the medical, uh, like the healthcare tourism mm-hmm. in India. Uh, 
but of course that article didn't go through and i worked me and professor worked really hard on that and you know it was supposed to be this joint uh, co-authoring this nice article about uh, you know the sort of the uh, services industry in hong kong so hong kong is like i think more than 90% of economies based on providing services so what do they do then like you know if they can can they go back to you know bringing in a bit more manufacturing as part of their uh, gdp mix or could they like you know also have uh, farming and things like that uh, associated so it was an interesting exploration of like okay when the industry is so heavily uh, like economy is so heavily dependent on just services what happens when other countries start offering cheaper services and companies move there like how do you know hong kong still continue mm-hmm. to uh, maintain a certain level of uh, you know gdp growth so it was an exploration of that and i just felt that okay because the article didn't work out for whatever reason that maybe it was not good enough on my part oh, but yeah. the professor said it's not you it's really like you know the way things were at the publication at that time and it was a chinese publication south south morning south china morning post uh that was the one uh that mm. we were hoping to get published in but in him so i i understand how that feels so uh but no you have every uh, you know uh, uh you have all it needs all all that one one needs to be published in top journal so it's only a matter of time and you'll get there yeah, only a matter of time i will get yeah. there <laughs> yeah so you're currently a researcher at university of pittsburgh what is the focus of your current research Uh so the work in space tourism actually launched two important research passion one is about the phenomenon in the space industry we have talked about it another is actually language so i used to love learning different languages but but now i'm more curious about language uh, in philosophy and the linguistic theories for example uh the fancy text analysis and machine learning uh, dealing with text has been have been really popular methods in the in the research field of management so uh, even i enrolled at the english department at the carnegie mellon university for a year just to get some training in natural language processing not the computer science department i'm so grateful for that because because i was in the english department so the more i learn uh the more i realize that any text analysis technique has built in a set of assumptions embedded in some linguistic theories but scholars like me or the majority in management do not have any training in linguistics unless just just apply that method so so we could easily interpret the results in the wrong way uh and one linguistic theory is called um Wolfing hypothesis that is saying that language controls people's thoughts and how they behave. So if you have watched the sci-fi movie Arrival, that learning the alien language enables you uh, gaining that alien superpower, that is a typical example of Wolfenism. Super attractive idea in popular culture, but the field of linguistics has abandoned that original form and moved beyond it. But as an outdated theory. Uh, scholars in my field we don't know that we we could just very easily apply that theory in a wrong way and generated 
implications based on that, and it can be misleading and dangerous. So uh, there are actually work uh, doing about that. So, so my current work, in short, is actually called the language lens of a strategy that is bringing linguistics to the management field. Oh, that's great. And yes, I agree because I, I speak four languages. I only speak English as an international language that can be spoken in other parts of the world. But there are three other languages that I speak that are very local to India because they're regional languages. Mm -hmm. And they're languages, not just the dialect. I mean, they are distinct languages. Uh, and so I, having lived through like, you know, different parts of India and communicated with people in different languages, I 100% validate that you know the language influences your thoughts and that has an eventual impact on what kind of actions you take and so you know the way a lot of uh, you know ancient indian scriptures are written are written from that very neutral perspective which is something that you don't think that you know back then people would have an awareness of like you know right now we understand that okay you know the languages and the words and the arrangement of them that you choose has an impact on uh, how you understand and you do things so yeah you are you are right like uh, different uh, languages have some impact on thoughts and how people behave but this theory is about like it determines it is like a causal relationship but in oh. uh, linguistics it's 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 not that as in that a strong form we we more accept like a weaker morphism that okay language has some relationship with how we think um, but it's uh, that that theory is more about talking okay we have different people the for example the structure of a chinese language is simpler than the english and the english structure may be simpler than french so french people could be the smartest because they have the most complicated structure so that would be like over simplifying the relationship between language and thought. So um, so it can be dangerous in one way because the public loves that idea. Okay, I speak something, you speak something different, so we are kind of different. Uh, that's what I love from the my favorite linguistic book. It says uh, all different languages communicate one simple thing, one simple truth that is called humanity. Even though you speak English in different Indian language, I may speak Chinese and in another language. However, love is mutual. We can get hungry, we want food, and uh, that kind of feeling experience and also are also shared. It's like uh, a, a metaphor I always use is um, I may eat food with chopsticks, but my uh, my husband, he's American, so he's going to eat using forks. So yeah. whatever tools we use doesn't really impact the fact that we just put food in our mouth, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that that would be um, like my criticism toward using that theory in in a stronger form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, as you said that you know, it's it's a popular mainstream idea to think that okay, because you know there is a certain uh, structure to the language or the way people speak things, it sort of like gives them some sort of an edge, but. Uh, yeah, ultimately, it's all about like, you know, communication, it boils down to that idea. And uh, within management, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, uh, now I see that more prominently than before, especially because now my team is more remote. So they are in different parts of the world. So you have to sort of balance wow. that communication, even when you're speaking the same language. Uh, there was <laughs> there was a there was a funny incident. Uh, and this is more more to do with the cultural norms rather than linguistics. But then uh, 
I was talking to one of my interns in India and she's this really young, you know, energetic outside of college uh, graphic designer. And I was telling her that, hey, you know, it's been so long that I haven't had a break that I really want to go to India and have a break. And then I told her that, you know, I feel like a lot of my like a lot of life around me slipping out of my hands because, you know, I I now became an uncle and uh, she said that, oh, no, stop saying that. No, that doesn't mean anything. I'm like, no, what do you mean? I mean, like my cousin brother's wife gave birth to a baby child. So that's how I'm an uncle now, you know, as part of yeah. like the larger extended mm-hmm. family. And I asked her, what did you mean? Like, why did you say me that don't say that she's like oh no i thought you were saying that you became an uncle because you recently turned 30 i'm like no it's that <laughs> that's that that has not got to do with anything like yeah. you know <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah yeah uh, some culture that it really is true yeah uh so it goes back to the theory always say that we have a different culture different languages and it just happened to divide up the life experience in a nuanced way, like in East Asia culture, when you get a certain age, you automatically earn yourself as a uncle and aunt. But uh, in some culture, you have to have that identity when you really have a niece or a nephew, right? Not just because you are older, so that make you into somebody. So that's really interesting. That would be a great example, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm an uncle when it comes to Indian culture. But here, most people that I know that are my age are still like, you know, hey, man, you know, I don't know what I want from my career. I don't know if I'll ever get married. And so it's that like, it's, you know, the way Indian culture and the US culture works is like two very separate things. so mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's that. Uh, but I'm like, no, I I'm uncle because my you know by the function of being an uncle and not uh, by the function of being an each. Uh, so <laughs> it was that. <laughs> uh, now, the meaning of uncle can be so different. Yeah, it's just like I was thinking uncle in a completely different context than what she was thinking, and it's the same word. So yeah. That's just fascinating to me. Uh, now, of course, you know, it's uh, you know, intense. Uh, sorry, research is a very intensive process. Uh, how do you balance the demands of intensive research with other aspects of your life, considering that, you know, research can be a very consuming activity? Oh, yes, it uh, really is uh, consuming. Um, but in my, in my case, I, I want to be more committed to research. Uh, I told Sam several times that I really want to become a workaholic and work 24-7 like a robot. But a lot of times I can be so lazy and unproductive. Um, so uh, gradually I learned to take good care of myself, especially learning from Sam. But but I do want to be more committed to the work. Um, there are just so many cool things uh, I want exploring research. Um, but, but yeah, you were right. Research is consuming. It requires constant focus. And like I said before, it is a social enterprise. So it, it, take, it needs conversation with other scholars. And I love interacting with people. And that, that's a good part. Uh, I guess I just should practice patience and um, keep telling myself writing skill takes time to develop. Uh, other than that, yes, I should keep good physical and mental health. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, 
yes you know these these skills are hard to develop and writing especially for me as i could say uh not to say that i am some like gifted human being or as such but uh for me writing was sort of easy to pick up because i was able to understand the structure of like how the storytelling works and then you know filling that with dialogues or you know uh those things became easier for me so that's why screenwriting was easy for me because i anyway had all these ideas uh in my head and now i had a structure to ah, I see. put them yeah so that that's how it became easier so actually it was like when i was preparing for gmat gmat has a reading comprehension section and you need like you know to understand mm-hmm. the structure rather than the actual words that are being mentioned so that was a strategy that was taught in that training and i found that that helps that works equally well with screenplay so it's that but uh yeah i i am still kind of trying to find my voice as i try more and more kind of narratives and more and more kind of subjects to deal with sometimes they're more technical uh, and sometimes they're more human but you know you have to yeah. balance both hands uh so yeah you are on the right track i mean you know if, if you're doing sec- your second phd patience is not a problem with you uh it's only just that you know there's so much of writing that can be done in so many different ways that it takes some time to build your style and your voice so you will be fine mm-hmm. but yes it can be a very consuming activity and uh i've i've come very close to burning myself out trying to work long hours and trying to get things done today rather than tomorrow yeah. but it's it's not healthy so it's okay if you do it in short bursts but in longer term it should be more paced out and more uh you know uh structured and more uh defined and we will get there we yeah, will yeah for sure now in your experience have you ever had to deal with irb which is an institutional review board uh yes i i only did irb with the space tourism work involving astronauts but but i simply used tweets published by astronauts on twitter So uh, my application was the exempted form, so it was relatively easy and uh, approved quickly. For um, organizational behavior or scholars, usually it's like my neighbor discipline that I know, um, they, they have to conduct in-person environments. Um, so their procedures need to be checked and approved by RB. I, I love participating in all different kinds of experiments. At both Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, um, just just to help their research but also just to learn how people handle experiments uh, sometimes researchers will review their true intention of the experiment or tell me some of my biological or mental results so it was so cool yeah i think you know because i was part of uh, you know the irb and uh, as as a result of that i had to meet with a lot of uh, prospective researchers and phd students to break them down the process of like you know what is the rather state regulations academic policies uh you know city regulations for doing human research uh and yeah for the most part yes. they would just feel a bit overwhelmed that okay there's so much of people work to do there's so much of information to share in these forms so exempt forms are like really easy because they're exempt from most uh mm-hmm. policies or uh, restrictions that sort of apply uh so that's that's what every researcher should aim for but of course sometimes that's not possible uh, especially when you're doing medical research or psychological research uh, oh yes so it's it's that and i would i would see this sort of like look of horror on their face that okay i have to share so much information and we would say like yeah unfortunately but 
my role was to sort of like help them break down and feel at ease when it comes to doing all those work uh, mm-hmm. to ensure that they get the paperwork out of it as soon as possible so that fo- they can focus on research. Uh, and there are some people who really hate IRB uh, for, you know, valid reasons. And yeah, invalid that's reasons. actual procedure only in the United States. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's just complicated where, you know, people are doing research with multiple universities at the same time. And that's a whole another universe. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, uh, I, I've seen it all so far. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's like IRB is like, you know, some, it's, it's a hurdle where it's just like, it's sort of the necessary evil thing that, okay, you cannot move forward without it, but, you know, just get it done with uh so <laughs> it's that it serves a purpose an important purpose but for most researchers it's like a hindrance uh so but it's 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 there like you know it's required um okay uh so the last couple of questions uh, what's your approach towards funding uh is it usually through your department or faculty or have you ever had to apply for external grants uh yes you're right most uh uh, my my research journey is, is supported by the university, and uh, uh, but yeah, I start to apply for external funding, the grants, different grants from different organizations later this year. Just think, yeah, not a bad idea. I would I would try. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, yes. Well, those those proposals are going to be long and tricky. So if you need help with them, then oh, yes. I would be, uh, you know, uh, more than happy to. Uh, offer my perspective on them. But yeah, I think uh, mostly researchers and faculty f- uh, faculty are able to fund research. But sometimes, you know, uh, other organizations like nonprofits or government bodies can sometimes come along and boost it. Yeah. Uh, so certainly can't see like, you know, anything uh, wrong with that. So yeah, wishing you luck for that. Thank you. I would need that. Yes. And so now let's try to like bring it all together uh, in the form that what would your uh, advice be to people who are considering academia as a full-time career? Um, based on my experience, I would say uh, two suggestions. Uh, first, that if if uh, like you have thought about academia, come join a PhD program and try it out. If, if it is not a good fit, just just drop it. There's no shame about it. It's, it's better to take ownership of your thoughts and desires than feeling regret later in your life. And in fact, I, I always admire my friends who have left PhD programs halfway because they developed some sense of knowing who they are and they are actually brave enough to act. Uh, so that would be the first suggestion. The second advice is uh, what I learned from a top female leader in the space industry. So she once told me that having a PhD allows her as a woman for voicing it out in the first place and gaining her space, gaining her space in a man-dominant industry. Uh, So she would suggest all women just go get a PhD. Uh, With that title, life can be much more interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think... You know, uh, we need more female representation on that level. So, you know, uh, not only a new way of thinking could be more widely accepted, but also the issues that are otherwise not given enough attention could also be explored. Uh, And, uh, you know, I've worked 
with some female researchers when it came to you know uh doing research about like you know for example if i'm writing a film about a female character of course you know i don't have the experience of you know living through what a female typically does uh and if it is more about understanding their mindset i reach out to a researcher uh or who's working in that field or a psychologist who has had extensive experience and that sort of just you know opens me up uh to the understanding of how things work and the best part is that it's backed by data like you know they could point you in so many directions mm-hmm. where you can then take that and turn that into the story you want to tell so yes i believe you know yeah. more female uh you know would do more uh, more females would do more good to the overall research community and uh, yeah i just hope that uh you know you become uh that stellar example of people uh for people to look up and consider academia as a full time career so yes uh you know it's also important to walk away and cut your losses when you know that it's not working out and you are just not enjoying the process and it feels more like punishment than fun you should walk away from anything in life that feels that way <laughs> doesn't have to be just career choice uh but exactly. um, yeah so that's that's a very good advice and yeah i just want to thank you for you know uh being so generous with your time and opening up about your experiences and uh your ideas and the work that you've been doing and i just hope that in your current research you find more success and uh you know you achieve everything that you wish to uh so thank you so much and the same to you thank you for having me you've been listening to the afflators if you like what you have heard subscribe to the show on apple podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The show also has a YouTube channel where you can watch the video version of the podcast. If you have a suggestion for a guest that we should feature, write to us on Instagram or drop a comment on our YouTube channel. We'll be back next week with another guest. Thank you so much for listening to the Afflators. Now is the best time to start working at Amazon. They're offering sign-on bonuses up to $3,000 and hourly pay up to $22 per hour. You'll bring home a great weekly paycheck and many jobs come with benefits that start on your first day. That's higher pay, sign-on bonuses, benefits day 1. And you'll be part of a safe and inclusive workplace ranked among the best in the world. Go to amazon.com/apply to start your job search today. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. I love your vacation home. How much time do you spend here? As much as we want. And when we're not using it, we rent it out. Our amazing team cares for and markets it on all the major booking sites. What team does all that? Vacasa. They manage everything, and I see it all on my phone. Plus, they've been earning us over 20% more after I switched from my last property manager. Your vacation home earns you that much? It's not a vacation home. It's a Vacasa home. Get your free vacation income estimate to see how much your vacation home can earn you. Call 800-544-0300 or visit vacasa.com. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store.
I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. So what does the future hold when it comes to artificial intelligence? Technologist Kai-Fu Lee is an AI backer who wanted to make the progress of AI accessible to wider audiences. So he teamed up with a fiction writer, Stanley Chen, to turn these themes and predictions into stories. In today's conversation from a 2021 TED membership event, the two of them talk with TED's technology curator, Simone Ross, about how they use the facts about AI to inform imaginative storytelling so that we all better understand its potential. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One. Capital One believes everyone deserves better banking, meaning easier access to your money and more security. And that's why Capital One is investing in machine learning. They're fighting fraud with random forests, giving mobile app outages the causal model anomaly detection treatment and speeding up online shopping with machine learning at the edge. Search machine learning at Capital One to explore more. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Thank you so much for joining us for today's event featuring technologist and AI expert, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, and science fiction writer, Stanley Chan. They are co-authors of the new book, AI 2041, 10 Visions for Our Future, which will be released here in the US on September 14th. Kai-Fu, Stanley, thank you both so much for joining us. Kai-Fu, I'm going to start with you. Um, Why write this book together? Well, It is my belief that AI is the most important technology uh, for mankind in the history of mankind. Uh, And it's important for everyone to really understand it, its implications and challenges. But just reading technology descriptions, such as the ones I have written as a technologist and investor, is just not reachable to everyone. And I think it's so important that if there is a way to make the storytelling really interesting and engaging and even entertaining, uh, then more people can access it and can kind of see where the future holds. So with that idea in mind, uh, I talked to Stanley about co-authoring the book with him writing the stories. And that's what hopefully will draw a lot more people to it. Wonderful. And Stanley, um, I believe part of the process was you wrote the story first and then Kai-Fu would write the accompanying sort of explanation. Did that constrain your imagination or your creativity in any way, knowing that there had to be an explanation of how the technology would actually work? I'll say the process is not exactly like what you imagine. So I think both Kai-Fu and I, we build up the roadmap together. We'll discuss in depth like how AI technology will evolve over the next 20 years and which uh, points of technology we should package and put into different stories. And then I come up with some directions attached to each story and then we will discuss um, back and forth. And then I um, get down to write a story and then Kaifu will write a tech analysis accordingly. So I think from the very beginning, from scratch, we are collaborating very close. And I don't think it will restrict uh, my imagination, but 
the other way around, it triggered and in, inspired a lot of my imagination based on the realistic facts of AI technologies. I used to work uh, by myself, so I can do whatever I, I love. But now it seems like the conversation and interaction really brings some chemistry into the story. It's really like dancing. Right. So, so a Stanley and Kaifu dancing duet is, is what we have here. Great. So I'd like to understand a little bit, um, Kaifu, from you. You know, we've been talking about the potential of AI for such a long time now, you know, decades even. And um, what's different now? Well, you know, I know that more than everyone else because I did my PhD uh, in 1988. And then I worked for Apple, Microsoft, Google. My CEO always asked me, when will AI be real? And that's really just happened in the last five years. If we look at how much progress has been made to date, this is not going to 2041. This is just to date. Think about uh, AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero, uh, AlphaFold, uh, GPT-3, autonomous vehicles, uh, the use of AI in all internet companies, the use of AI in financial applications, um, and all the robots that's working and all the RPA technologies that's um, displacing uh, white-collar work. It's really been blossoming in the last five years. And, and I think that is just the beginning for, for much more is to come in the next 20. So our future is finally here. Um, we have some questions from the audience. So this one is from Estefania. Do you think there's a limit to AI since it's a human creation or will it reach a point of self-development? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take that first. So um, AI actually uh, is not completely programmed. It's programmed to have a goal it's programmed to have an architecture, but then it learns by itself on more data. And it, the more data that's fed, as long as you have enough processor, the better it gets. And that is what has enabled the huge progress in the last five years. It's not just smart people inventing new algorithms to solve all these problems, but it's people framing it in a certain way and then letting the machine learn for itself. So the self-organization, self-learning, and the fact that it gets better with Every 10 times increase in data, it gets better. That is the amazing and sometimes scary thing about AI. Now, about AI's ability to self-program, I don't doubt that will happen to some extent. But so far, AI still requires a certain level of direction from a programmer. And then it will learn under the architecture set out by the programmer. So in the context of the book AI 2041, I think you will see AI that is uh, highly intelligent, uh, very interactive, uh, gets better than you think on a lot of capabilities, and it keeps growing. But it's not growing as many people would assume in previous science fiction that it becomes a superset of humans, but rather it grows in many directions on many things we cannot do. But humans still maintain you know, our soul, our creativity, our ability to love. And, and that, that is, I think, something that I don't see replacing by AI in the next 20 years. So, so we will sort of maintain our humanity and, and we won't be aged out by the AI. Stanley, do you have um, some thoughts on that? So I think it all depends on the three key factors like computation power, 
like the algorithm and also I think the data. So as Kaifu mentioned, like uh, right now, I couldn't see that like the singularity point will coming over the next 20 years. But as a science fiction writer, I'm pretty looking forward to that day. Even maybe it will somehow like conquer the human beings. Okay. Conquering human beings, that's, that sounds a little scary. Um, okay, another question from, from the audience, this one from Midan. Um, I believe this is um, directed to Kaifu. In a recent interview with Peter Diamandis, you were talking about longevity and 150 years lifespan. How do you reconcile this prediction based on science and tech advancement with the reality of ever-increasing prevalence of chronic diseases at a decreasing age onset. Okay, uh, I, I don't think I quite made a 150-year projection. Peter may have. I'm a strong believer in that uh, AI will collect, uh, will use a lot of data, much more than medical doctors and scientists have ever been able to collect, including our genetic sequencing, our um, MRI and scans and the full blood tests with all the markers. And with all that data coming in from a large number of people, it will be able to compare any individual to a prototypical healthy person and measure the gap and figure out ways to improve, whether it is sleep or reducing stress or eating better or nutrients or medicine uh, or uh, exercising. Uh, That is something that is not so far off. Uh, I am actually personally uh, experimenting with a company we invested in. I have been collecting all of my data extensively and for the past year, and I've been measuring my, uh, my blood uh, for now uh, against uh, people who are at my age and five years younger, 10 years younger, five years older, et cetera. And um, uh, it's given me very sensible advice. Now, with a human doctor uh, interpreting the AI output, of course, and telling me, okay, you're really not exercising enough. We should not think of aging as the inevitable, irreversible reality. Uh, we can't live forever. Our body has a you know, certain expiration date. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think there are many ways to uh, make ourselves healthier. It's, not, it's also people say, oh, I don't want to live forever. I'll be miserable. I'll be sick. The whole idea is not longevity for longevity's sake, but it's how to get you to be younger, more energetic, and more healthier. And, and that's correlated with living longer. So I believe this, this will happen. And um, uh, I, I don't know how long we can extend our age. So there's no reason in the next 20 years, we can't be in the uh, mid-high 80s. In another 20 years, maybe in the 90s, even up to 100. That's definitely uh, imaginable based on what I have uh, experienced. And, and the gap that I think remains to make us healthy uh, in a precision medicine kind of way that just hasn't, we just haven't collected all the data. We're in the health wise, we're in the Yahoo days, right? Yahoo <laughs> days of the internet. That's where we're at. We haven't yet uh, discovered Google, Facebook, and all the rest. So we're just collecting the data. And I think the best is yet to come. I love that we're in the Yahoo days. Um, Another question from the audience. So while we're talking about improving things, um, this one from Monica, what's the impact of AI for education? So I I believe uh, if you look at all the industries, education is one that has changed the least over the last hundred years, right? 
the way we communicate by Zoom, entertain ourselves with you know iPhones and VR, and work, uh, working remotely, is completely changed. The scene's totally different. Uh, education is still one which is mostly uh, a teacher giving a lecture to all, giving a test to all, giving homeworks to all. It's um, uh, it's basically one size fit all kind of a approach, and that's understandable historically because. One could not afford, you know, a teacher for every student. But I think going forward, I think we want a teacher for every student because every student has different weaknesses, different um, uh, preferences, different hobbies. Some would be would score better if we cast the problems as a basketball or as dancing or something that uh, excite them. And also, if you can imagine a an AI teacher companion that is watching over uh, each student, helping with them, and, and making learning almost a gamification, a, a fun experiment. So a lot of the content can be taught by this personalized, targeted uh, AI companion teacher. Right? We think about targeting as a bad thing because you know Facebook targets us with things that makes us addicted or extreme in views. But if it's targeting us to help us learn, then it's aligned with our goals. So I think that is a huge power of AI that can make a one AI teacher per student kind of a future. And and the human teachers don't disappear at all. You still need human teachers uh, to help with um, uh, things like encouragement. Uh, personal connection, uh, cre- uh, understanding values, and learning creativity, and encouraging critical thinking, and teaching about communication and teamwork and EQ and all that, then it becomes a much um, a much better education, much more targeted and also personalized. Uh, maybe Stanley can talk about the the story in which he talked about AI education. Yes, Stanley, go ahead. Yeah, I highly recommend uh, everyone who had interest in how AI could change the education industry should uh, read the story. Twin Sparrow is talking about two orphan boys who were adopted by two different family, which uh, both uh, use AI companion teacher in different way. So it's not only about customized algorithm. For each student, but also, I mean, now we have this kind of online class like every day on Zoom. But it feels so isolated, so people might feel lonely when you、uh, spending a lot of time on a platform. But actually, you couldn't feel each other. But in in our imagination, with、uh, MPL natural language processing and XR technology like AR, VR, MR, so actually you can have this kind of realistic.、Uh, Presence of each other, and it's not isolating each other, but to reconnect each other. So, I hopefully, when you finish the story, you will feel the future of education is so hopeful and so warm and full of empathy and passionate of of our like next generation future. Yeah, right.、Um, another question from the, the audience.、Um, This one from Fabio. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit.、Um, so, what is the impact of AI on poorer countries? How how do how do we ensure that that this is somewhat evenly distributed? Kaifu can go first. Sure. I think in the short term, there are already、uh, efforts in place to make sure that big countries don't just come in 
and uh, take all the apps and make them used locally and take all the data away and extract money without giving anything back. So I think having some short-term laws and regulations to ensure that um, if your citizens' data is being used to monetize some big country's app, that you're properly compensated for it. And then that money can go back to the economy because really, really data is incredibly valuable and that near-term measure needs to be done. In the, in the longer term, I believe each country needs to develop its specialty. And, and as I describe in the book, it's really not just about AI. Uh, sometimes it's about uh, cultures that have special uh, characteristics. You know, some culture really value craftsmanship. Others really value uh, giving back. Others value service. Others value family. And I think globally speaking, AI will end up creating a lot of value, uh, a lot of economic value. And it's not just AI, but also uh, the advances in um, synthetic um, biology and energy and new materials. So things will become cheaper and better so that in the future, more and more people won't have to do routine jobs for a living. They can do what they, they like and, and they can contribute positive energy and also the ideas can help globally. So I, I think you know some countries might want to focus on uh, tourism and, and the exciting things about its uh, civilization and the storytelling. So I think a lot of those will become possible. I think uh, service industry will become huge. So, you know, today people are using products, in, you know, branded, invented in the U.S., manufactured in China, which is why these two countries are a little bit, uh, a, a lot more wealthier right now. But, but I think in the future, what will be of the greatest value is not just the products, because products will become commoditized with all the things we describe in the book. And what will value the most is service and human touch service and uh, things that have strong cultural elements. So I think those are possible directions as well. And of course, all that said, every country should make sure people who are uh, strong in learning about uh, technology and algorithms and AI should get to do so, so that the country um, does not uh, fall behind, uh, because this is an incredibly important technology uh, for, you know, look look at how much um, industrial revolution has helped U.S. uh, become a leader in the globally. And, and I think AI is another potential equalizer or unequalizer. So uh, countries should really uh, value uh, maybe not AI for everyone, but for those who are interested and, uh, and skilled. You've said that the AI should be sort of a great equalizer, but also potentially not. So Tom is asking why we should trust AI scientists mm-hmm. to develop these powerful technologies. And I'd like to add on to that, you know, why should we trust our governments and and regulators um, to help get us to a more equal society as they claim to want to do? Well, I'll take a shot and then Stanley can can add to that. Um, Well, we should first make sure everyone's educated so we can all become uh, participants, watchdogs, and raise our opinion if the uh, programmers and scientists and corporations and governments aren't doing their job. Hopefully the book describes clearly that uh, many of these um, problems of AI are actually externalities. They're not intentionally uh, creating harm for the individuals, but they're done as a side effect. 
So I think the key thing then is, um, you know, AI scientists are bad people, don't trust them, but it's rather uh, make sure they're educated to understand with greater power comes greater responsibility. So what must they do when they program an algorithm to make sure it doesn't have bias or uh, unfairness or treat, uh, you know, women or minorities unfairly, et cetera. Uh, So, and also better tools should be developed. So even if a scientist is negligent, it catches it up front. Um, And and also, you know, with uh, large internet companies, uh, some of what they do is perhaps uh, just out of greed. Others are maybe um, not, not, not well thought out. And some of it is just unintentional. So there needs to be watchdogs. I don't think we can abdicate our responsibility and say, hey, government, you fix the internet companies, you know, break them up and punish them and make them pay big fines. That doesn't solve the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that uh, AI is so powerful with its algorithms, so powerful that large companies cannot resist using it to make money um, and unintentionally and sometimes intentionally at our expense. So I think the key issue is how to align the large company's interest with ours. So it sounds like you think that we collectively also have somewhat of a responsibility um, and role in driving where this sort of AI future can take us. So, Stanley, I have a question question for you. This one is also from the audience, from Hannah. Um, What AI advancements that already exist do you think are stranger than fiction? Yeah, I think there are a few things actually make me think like science fiction writers is kind of lack of imagination in reality. So for example, like deep fake, there's something I don't think in previous science fiction had a lot of description on the thing, like how people using technology to transfer their, their face, their voice, their movement to pretend one another. Meanwhile, it's not for good, but it's doing bad things and how we can fight against those misbehaviors. So another thing is like uh, right now, I think AI is more capable than human being on recognizing micro expression, even detecting all these small infrastructures in your voice, in your tongue, and they can foresee what your mental status is and what kind of reaction and response you might gonna make. So I think fundamentally we will learn a lot from AI because it's a mirror. It's like human beings, but it can reveal so many hidden structure and hidden knowledge from this huge amount of data, which a human being as, as a collective group couldn't really interpret uh, deeply enough, but AI can. So moving on to something where AI probably does have um, a big impact. Um, another audience question, this time from Jen. In the next 20 years, will some aspects of industry be fully replaced by AI? Um, and will AI cause unemployment? It's so easy to be replaced by uh, machines. In another story, called the job savior and it actually set in California, uh, San Francisco is talking about how people should be 
taken care of when there's mass scale of uh, structuralized unemployment happen, and along with the development of AI technology, like in, invaded into different uh, industries. So our thought is like uh, besides uh, basic income, that's one solution. But I think work is much more than making money. It's about dignity. It's about self-actualization. It's about how you finding your position in the family and among others in the society. So we have this kind of idea. We should use and leverage AI technology to do the job allocation. If we can live up to 150, so it's no way that you only do one or two or three jobs, right? So I think AI should totally work to help people to retrain and reallocate in a new job and to help them to find their own value in this uh, highly uncertainty uh, dynamic change of uh, job change. This question comes from a bunch of people. Um, what scares you most about AI and the future? I think the most scary thing about AI is it, it can be an amplifier to brew up all the negativities in humanity. So maybe you, you've heard from the news, like uh, there's a chatbot on Twitter uh, from Microsoft, and it learned all the cursing and bias and discrimination during the interaction and conversation with the trolls. So I think that's something really scares me because during this kind of feedback loop, it might trigger even more like darker side of human beings. Right now, we are, have this kind of extremist on the internet, on the social medias, but whether we understand if they're talking with the chatbot or not. So maybe some terrorists were using this way to trigger some extreme emotions and protesting uh, virtually. So I think that's something scares me in the future. What excites you most about AI? So Kaifu, you first and then Stanley. Well, I've already talked a bit about um, getting AI aligned with our interests. In some sense, it's uh, addressing Stanley's concern that um, AI would target each person and make us think things that are against our interests. But, but let's suppose for the moment that we can uh, somehow get at least a set of people to program AI in a way that aligns itself with our future interests. I think that's something... Um, that's incredibly exciting. Um, you know, Tristan Harris talks about it. None of us know how to do it. It's perhaps a new app ecosystem. Maybe it's a new device. We're all willing to pay money for things that enrich us, things that make us happier and more knowledgeable. So if only we can figure out how to incentivize people to build that app and get monetized for it, and, and you got to align the economic interests um, to make that happen. That's probably the uh, one very important thing that excites me. The other thing I would mention is that uh, everything is double-edged sword. We talk about job displacement, routine work being done by AI. But I would ask that at the end of the day, 
right? In 20 years, let's say all the routine jobs are, or 90% of the routine jobs are displaced by AI. Does that put us in a better or worse place, right? Assume we help people transition from routine jobs to better jobs, and we educate our prosperity in a responsible, constructive way um, so that people are pursuing their interests and their talents and not repeating what's routine, then we will have done something that is phenomenal for mankind, namely that uh, we will have liberated humanity from ever having to do routine work so that we can do things that we were really put on this earth to do. So that's probably the number one thing that excites me. But, but the road to get there is uh, treacherous and dangerous and uh, full of potholes. Stanley, what excites you? I think it might uh, totally change the way we do the scientific research. For example, now we're using AlphaFold to predict the protein structure, and we're using computer vision to dig out the, the uh, connectome of human brain. So I think there's a lot of things ahead of us, a way for uh, AI to help human beings to understand more about the fundamental mechanism of ourselves and the world. So I think that is a paradigm shift in the future. So with the help of AI, I think we're going to fix a lot of unsolvable problems, including uh, climate changes. So I think that's very uh, not positive future ahead of us, but I think we should hold on to that positive imagination because we try to create a future. We should start from imagining one. Well, I think positivity is a great way and a great place to end. So we're going to hopefully liberate um, humanity um, from drudgery and free us to do the things that we were put on the earth to do. And it is going to hopefully help solve things like climate change for us. I think that pretty much wraps up our time for today. So thank you both so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. And thank you, Kaifu and Stan. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Going back into really ancient history, 2009, we actually began in one room up on this floor. And, How um, many of you in that one room? Three of us, all called Chris, which was very confusing. This is Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence officer who wrote the infamous dossier claiming collusion between Russia and Donald Trump in the 2016 US presidential election. When we were doing the dossier, we used to allude to it as the nuclear bomb that was ticking. Well, this was the room in which it ticked. In his first major interview with a British broadcaster, the 57-year-old met Sky's security and defence editor, Deborah Haynes, and showed her around the rented office space in Surrey where his working life after MI6 began. 
strangely, just after we left, and people have been talking about metaphorically the roof falling in on us because of the dossier. The roof did actually fall in at this office. What, well, in here? <laughs> yeah, three months after we left. <laughs> so we were wondering whether there'd been sort of Russians sort of crawling about in the, in the eaves or whatever when we were in here. Is Russian hostility growing? What is being done to deter threats? And what is the life of a spy really like? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnan. My colleague Deborah Haynes spent more than two hours interviewing Christopher Steele, and this is some of what he shared with us. There are serious people at the top of Russia who regard themselves at war with us. Did you ever uncover any evidence of hostile Russian operations against the UK? Yes. It's not just Britain that Christopher Steele deems to be at risk from the Kremlin. I think they think they could possibly collapse the EU, yes. And what about his infamous dossier that claimed Donald Trump and his 2016 US election campaign colluded with Russia? We described it as a nuclear device ticking away in our safe. Christopher Steele describes himself as a risk-taker. He set up Orbis Business Intelligence, a private intelligence company, here in his hometown of Farnham with a colleague after they both left Britain's secret intelligence service, MI6. I sent the, the email out from this very room to my FBI contact saying that I needed him to come to London ASAP. In 2016, the men accepted a piece of work to investigate possible links between then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russia. Their ultimate client was a law firm that represented rival Democrats. The result was political dynamite. It was in this safe here that the bomb ticked. He's referring to his work on Trump, dubbed by some the dirty dossier. It was single-source reporting in general. It was produced in a live sort of real-time process as this election campaign was unfolding. His unverified reports alleged widespread Russian interference, sanctioned by President Vladimir Putin, to stop Hillary Clinton from winning, and even that the Kremlin was colluding with the Trump campaign. How much of this is real, do you think? I think the vast majority of it's real. How confident are you that the content of that truly conveyed material is accurate? I think it's largely accurate. I mean, if you were to say to me, is every cross T and dotted I right? The answer is probably no. That's very typical of intelligence work. What matters is that the main thrusts of it are right, and the majority of the details right. What can you say about the credibility of your sources? We were professionals. We had done this throughout our careers and our lives, and we were pretty confident that the majority of the sources were highly reliable, and others were certainly moderately to highly reliable, which is a good position to be in when you're doing intelligence work. But Trump has dismissed the dossier as a hoax and its author as a failed spy. It's all fake news. It's phony stuff. It didn't happen. The US government has accused Russia of interfering in the 2016 election by hacking and leaking emails to damage Hillary Clinton. But official investigations didn't prove collusion between Moscow and Trump, and there's been no evidence to corroborate Steele's most lurid claim. 
that the Kremlin holds compromising video material of Trump with prostitutes, taken when he visited a hotel in Moscow in 2013. What level of confidence would you place on there being sex tapes of Trump taken by Russia as compromat? Pretty high. The former president's spokeswoman says that's nonsense. It's disgusting. It's false. It's an outright smear. There's never been any evidence because it never happened. This was one of the biggest, dirtiest tricks in politics, led to the biggest smear, perhaps in American history, with no evidence, completely made up, to try to derail the American people's choice for president in 2016 and hurt his presidency. Are you a fraud? No, of course I'm not. What would you say to them? If I'd been a fraud, do you think that I would have held security clearances in government for decades? His life was turned upside down when his dossier and identity became public in January 2017. Steele claims he may even have been targeted by Russian agents while on holiday with his wife. Curiously, it was um, in my wife's sponge bag, two wedding rings, one male, one female, which were planted in her sponge bag in our bathroom, in our luxury high-security hotel in the Caribbean. And what do you think the message was? We know where you are, we can get to you, don't think you're able to hide from us. A spokesman for President Putin declined to comment on any of the allegations. Steele was once MI6's top Kremlin expert, and he says his work on Trump is only a fraction of his work for private clients on Russia, something he's still doing and he's worried. In the run-up to the Brexit referendum of June 2016, his company was investigating suspected Russian meddling across Europe, including in the UK. Did you ever uncover any evidence of hostile Russian operations against the UK? Yes. Everything from corrupt leadership money being brought on shore and invested in strategic industries and the like, which is something of concern, to potential attempts to fund parts of the, the Brexit campaign and interference in that. Scottish referendum, some evidence of interference in, in that as well. And what sort of evidence? I don't have it to hand, but clearly some of the same playbook that we saw, so money being moved through deniable channels and coming out the other end technically legal, there was a whole load of loopholes. There's since been the Salisbury spy poisonings blamed on Russia, evidence of meddling in the 2019 UK general election, even attempts to hack COVID vaccine research. Have you described the Russia problem as getting worse, not better? Absolutely, yes. I think Russia itself is becoming... It's moving from being an authoritarian state to being a much more totalitarian state. So I think that we've got a real problem. He doesn't believe his former colleagues in the security agencies are doing enough to deter Russia. Neither are their political masters. I mean, there are serious people at the top of Russia who regard themselves at war with us. And the fact that our politicians neither want to recognise or deal with that is a big problem. But the UK's former national security adviser pushed back. Every senior politician I've dealt with, Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, whatever, takes any threat of this kind really seriously. They take national security seriously. They worry about the impact on the democratic process. They're right to do so. While the United States launched multiple investigations into Russian interference... The Russian government interfered in our election in sweeping and systematic fashion. In the UK, it was just Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee. We know that 
Russia targets the UK, and not just to steal secrets or research. It suits Russia if there is disunity in the West. The watchdog found the government didn't carry out a full investigation into the possibility of Russian meddling in the Brexit vote. It's very worrying because I think what it shows is because Brexit was such a divisive partisan issue, if you like, that they, it's not an area they wanted to tread into. The government's repeatedly said it never found evidence of successful interference. Steele claims Russia also poses a risk to EU unity. They've got to the point where I think they think they are, they've got their tails up. They can think that they can work through particularly Eastern European countries where they've got governments which are sympathetic to them and extreme left and right parties in Western European countries similarly, that they could actually bring down the EU. So you, you really think that they believe they could collapse the EU? I think they think they could possibly collapse the EU, yes. They are zero-sum thinkers. They think that if anything benefits us, it's at their expense. If anything benefits them, it's at our expense. And that sort of mentality and philosophy leads to serious problems and serious threats to our integrity. Former Prime Minister Theresa May is a figure singled out for particular criticism over her response to the Russia threat. Christopher Steele revealed that he and his business partner Chris Burrows had briefed her on it more than a decade ago. Did she take you seriously back in 2010? Yes. How, how do you know that? Well, she was there for hours. I mean, it, you know, it's not, <laughs> it is not particularly orthodox for the Home Secretary to have a meeting like that. He says the government had even asked him to review some sensitive papers on Russia just days before his Trump dossier became public, so found these remarks quite galling. It is absolutely clear that the individual who produced this dossier has not worked for the UK government for years. Were you surprised at her comments? Surprised and disappointed. Steele had decided to share his dossier with British officials in late 2016. He says they handled it properly, but he's not so sure about the then Prime Minister. The overall impression I had was that this was a problem they didn't want to face up to and therefore there was a fear, I think, that Trump was so pumped up with all this stuff that if the British government was seen to give it credibility and to work on it, that they would have been punished in whatever form, whether it's a trade deal or whatever else Theresa May and others were trying to achieve with America at the time. Her then National Security Advisor disagreed. The British government has both, Theresa May and Boris Johnson have said, has to have a good relationship with the President of the United States, whoever that is. Um, but because he didn't see action of the kind that he was hoping to see, does not mean it wasn't taken seriously. And any allegation of that kind is, of course, investigated properly and professionally. Steele also appears to have concerns about the current Prime Minister. I think it's very curious that he ennobled the son of a KGB officer. Indeed, I do. I think it's... Um, Worrying. He's referring to Lord Lebedev, owner of the Independent and Evening Standard newspapers, who told Sky News he's proud to be a British citizen. The peer said he and his father have entirely separate business interests, and he thought the UK had moved on from obsessing about what people's fathers did or do. Putin himself once said, Raz Czechist Vsigda Czechist. If you're an intelligence officer once, you're always an intelligence officer. And I've been surprised at the number of former Russian intelligence officers who are able to come to the UK, send their children to the UK, invest money in the UK, so on and so forth. We're not getting this right. 
Not everyone will think he got it right either. But Steele hopes by breaking cover, they will at least hear his warnings. Coming up, I speak to Deborah about the man himself, his warnings and what other interesting things he had to say during their lengthy conversation. He won't confirm on or off the record that he'd worked at MI6, but it's obviously widely known that he was in the secret intelligence service. I'm Deborah Haynes and I'm the security and defence editor at Sky News. He wasn't tapped on the shoulder. He went to Cambridge. But when he left university, he actually tried to be a journalist, believe it or not, and applied for the job at the Western Mail in Cardiff and got rejected. And then he sort of answered a headhunter's advert in one of the newspapers for people that are interested in foreign travel and languages. His CV was then sort of circulated to different clients, including the government. So that's when he got called forward for his government interview. And although he wouldn't say which department of Whitehall called him forward, it's pretty evident which one it was. He obviously wanted to get to work quite quickly and he agreed to learn Russian rather than waiting for a different type of role. He could go straight in, learn Russian as a foreign language and then be deployed overseas. At the time when he started government service was in the late 80s. So it was sort of the latter end of the Cold War. So he was actually posted to Moscow between 1990 and 1993, so saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, and the aftermath. And he describes this really interesting moment when he, like, he had then Prime Minister John Major and his Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd coming out to visit Gorbachev. And he had, as in Christopher Steele, had played a part in kind of helping to facilitate the meetings with Mikhail Gorbachev and the Prime Minister And he was sort of waiting at the Kremlin for the British ministers to rock up. And they were a bit late. And suddenly Mikhail Gorbachev kind of emerges in front of the world's media. And there's Christopher Steele. They have an exchange in Russian. And Mikhail Gorbachev asks him, well, what do you do? And Christopher Steele's like, oh, I work at the embassy. Well, what do you do there? Well, you know, part of my job is to keep an eye on you. (laughs) So a little bit of a... Should we know a little bit about what he he was doing while he was there? Just rewind a bit there, because you say, you know, he was at Cambridge, one of the traditional... Uh, recruiting uh, ways into into the uh, security services and didn't get the tap on the shoulder. This is the um, old chap. Um, you look the made. You're made of the right stuff, and uh, you'll help us defend the nation. Why not? What was he doing while he was at university then? Well, I don't know why he didn't get the tap on the shoulder then, but he was very busy debating. He became very interested in in the whole sort of debating culture at the union and sort of worked his way up to become the president of the Cambridge Union at the same time as a certain Boris Johnson was the the president of the Oxford Union. And um, he kind of recalls this rather rowdy debate which the Cambridge was hosting and Boris Johnson was heading the rival Oxford team and apparently they'd been a bit of drinking on the coach on the way over. Never. And so he described them as being um, not particularly sober when they were taking part in this debate. It was a, a debate about whether or not Oxford and Cambridge should kiss and make up. Christopher Steele, who was presiding over the debate, had to, to a number of times kind of try to restore order. He said it was quite quite rowdy, but, but very much good fun. Well, let's go back to the Russia years then. So then he's there at this, I mean, crucial point in, in world history, presumably not just observing, although we're um, not entirely sure what he was doing. What then happens to him and why does he end up leaving MI6? He can't talk about his time in government because obviously it's 
secret. Mm. But we know that he obviously rose up the ranks in terms of Russian expertise and sort of becoming one of the top experts in MI6 in terms of the Kremlin and the challenge posed by Russia. But remember at the time as well, you'd had the end of the Cold War and that belief that there was this sort of democracy emerging, democracy triumphant end of that end of whole, history. End of history, exactly. And then obviously that you had the two Gulf Wars and that switch to the fight against terrorism. And we know very well about that switch in resource away from these state-based threats to the terror-based threats, which has now since been reversed. So he was obviously going through the service at that time. And I don't know the exact reason why he left, but clearly you earn more money in the private sector. So that must have been a motivating factor. He and another intelligence officer called Christopher Burroughs, who's a, a little bit older. So Chris Steele is 57 and Christopher Burroughs is 63. And the two of them decided to set up on their own what they called this company Orbis Business Intelligence, so a, a private intelligence company. And he actually took me to the office uh, that he rented in Farnham, which is his hometown, where they set this whole thing up. There's this, a life-sized safe in the building. The dossier that he became then so famous or infamous for was actually stored inside this safe for a period of time. So he sort of showed me the safe and it's a bit musty and stinky. But yeah, that was where it was. You know, what do we know about the dossier and what does he say about it? I mean, we know some of the more salacious allegations that are made in the dossier. You know, how did it come about? How was he recruited to do it? Well, he said that his unique selling point was his Russia expertise. So that was clearly where clients would hire him to do investigations linked to Russia. So, for example, in 2015, 2016, period. He was doing work uh, investigating suspected Russian operations, influence operations in Europe and also in Ukraine. There was a big focus on Ukraine. And through that work, he, he knew this former journalist called Glenn Simpson, who has his own kind of corporate intelligence company in the United States called Fusion. And that was the company that was hired by a law firm whose ultimate clients were Democrats to investigate Donald Trump's business dealings in Russia. Glenn Simpson then turned to Christopher Steele and Orbis because of Christopher's Russia expertise to ask him to get involved. And that was a conversation that happened in kind of May, June 2016. And at the same time, there was some public reporting about suspicions of Russian meddling. It was, do you remember the, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee computer servers that were hacked that was public at the time. So it wasn't like it was a complete surprise that Russia was allegedly trying to interfere in the election. But there was no sort of sense of this collusion. And that was what Christopher Steele then alleges that his sources discovered. You know, he accepted the work, but wasn't really expecting to find much. But then when he sort of cast his net, he, he kind of like got this huge sort of fish at the end of it, he says, in terms of what his sources were then telling him. And you know, he was very careful about saying anything about his sources. He did let on that all his sources were Russian. Questions have been raised about how could he possibly have known people that could have known this information. But he, he is consistently adamant that he believes the sources to be credible and the information that they relayed to be, to an extent, accurate. But he does make the point that it wasn't a dossier. So the media, everyone, we call it a dossier, don't we? 
but it wasn't formulated as a dossier. What it comprises is 18 reports They're on pieces of A4 paper and it's kind of single source reporting. So source X says Y. It's not a tried and tested end product. It's just the beginning of what a product might look like. And then they were circulated a bit amongst some media organisations and some politicians towards the back end of 2016. And then BuzzFeed, the news website, which ultimately decided to publish them, published 17 of them. It didn't publish the full 18. And so these 17 reports are what are called the dossier. But actually, in itself, it's not a dossier, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I know. I fully get that. But I did not know that. So it's a bit rough and ready. But Christopher Steele, first and foremost, stands by the credibility and robustness of his sources making those various allegations. What did you make of Christopher Steele's credibility, you know, when you're looking him in the eye as he's justifying and standing by, I was going to say that dossier, those sheets of paper, what were you thinking? This is a guy who, you know, he's lived his life, a you know, secret life, really. I mean, he's obviously had to step out from behind that veil of secrecy since 2009. He's a businessman. He's, he's trying to make money. He's trying to earn a living in that way. But he's obviously got a credible background in terms of his pedigree. There are credible people who vouch for him as having been, as a professional inside the service, a, a credible individual. All of the Donald Trump claims of failed spy just don't stack up. He's not a failed spy. He was a successful intelligence professional. Is he, is he annoyed about those uh, claims? He's quite, he's, uh, I think he kind of like laughs them off because he was obviously the target of a lot of trolling from Donald Trump when Donald Trump was allowed to tweet. He does come across as quite vulnerable as well because you know, here he is having to have his work scrutinised and he's had so much thrown at him. There's obviously been the litigation, you know, oligarchs that have launched legal proceedings against him and his company over the dossier. And he's had to sort of weather that. I mean, ultimately, he clearly knows his stuff when it comes to Russia. You know, he's got a product that created this global storm. I don't know who the sources are to be able to vouch for their credibility, but the fact that he consistently stands by them and the remarks he makes about the threat that Russia poses to Western democracy. It's not like he's saying something that's out there. It's something that's widely accepted as a fact by, you know, fellow intelligence professionals. That's one of the most worrying things about it, isn't it? I mean, listening to, to your interview with him is, is that this is clearly a man, you know, leaving aside the dossier. I'll still keep calling it that, even though you explained it's not a full dossier. But leaving that aside, this is a man who clearly knows Russia inside out and, you know, was there for the formation of modern Russia, knows all the uh, characters involved. And that, is a very chilling warning. It is. I guess as well, though, he's, you know, he's not in the service anymore. So in that sense, his currency has got to wane. But he's clearly still investigating this stuff. I thought this was really interesting when he said that just about 10 days before the dossier became public, he was being asked to review official government papers on Russia by the Joint Intelligence Committee. So he's of such credibility that the government was still calling on his expertise. How did you get the interview? Tell us about your own sleuthing, Deborah. <laughs> I don't know about sleuthing, more like desperation. So I was the defence editor at the Times when the dossier came out. You will remember, it was like a huge, huge news story at the time. And this former British spy making these incredible allegations about the president-elect then, Donald Trump. Everybody was trying to find him. He suspected that his, it was only a matter of time before his name came out. And so he and his family had actually gone into hiding. And I remember sort of calling up every single person I knew who might possibly have some kind of inkling of where he is and, or a number for him. 
and to like not very great success. I wrote a letter to Orbis, emailed them and like followed them on Twitter. They had an address in Victoria in London and I went to the address and kind of posted my letter through the door with a card. We know how it is. And then eventually he kind of met up with a colleague and was saying that, you know, your, your colleague Deborah keeps on messaging me and then agreed to give his number. And so that was how I first got in touch with him. And then we'd meet a number of times at a hotel for a drink and just to get to, you know, get to know him and try and see whether he'd want to speak. And it was a horrendously difficult time because of especially that the legal peril that he faced. I think that was a, a big factor. And then, you know, I guess of your safety concerns too, not so much from the Russia threat, but more like the lunatics who really believe that he is part of some deep state conspiracy. So he has to sort of, you know, be wise to that. And then he's obviously looking for his legacy. I mean, if you look at his Wikipedia entry, it's huge. So here is a guy who has spent his life in the shadows, suddenly in the glare, the ultimate glare of publicity that you could possibly imagine, and how to handle that, how to deal with that. Yeah, it's taken a good few years for him to feel as though he's ready to talk. He's thinking about doing a book, so I think that there's more to come from Christopher Steele. I'm sure you always get asked this. I'm sure he always does. Uh, but we are speaking at a time when the latest James Bond film has just come out. Are there any parallels or any similarities, probably a better word, but you know, between the lives of what we see on, on the big screen and uh, the likes of Christopher Steele? The various heads of the um, Secret Intelligence Service always kind of, you know, they sort of laugh about the whole James Bond analogy. And it's, it's a great publicity tool for MI6. But they always make the point that the real intelligence officers aren't sort of running around the world with fast cars and loads of guns. A lot of the most dangerous work is done by the agents that they run. So in that sense, it doesn't mirror what you see on on the big screen. But interestingly for Christopher Steele, he's actually friends with Daniel Craig. kind of randomly yeah how weird is that he was sort of half jokingly but said that you know that Craig would you know potentially like to play him if a movie was ever to be made of Christopher Steele's life so who knows fiction can play fact maybe (laughs) one day (laughs) we await that with bated breath and that's it until next time my thanks to Deborah and to you for listening to the Sky News daily podcast hosted by me Dermot Manan this edition was produced by Annie Joyce If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one. And you know what? We'd love a review while you're there. The nature of warfare is changing. An invisible enemy is on the rise in a grey zone between war and peace. It's a global battlefield that thrives on deniability. The weapons of choice include disinformation, intimidation and cyber attacks. Anyone can be a target. Into the grey zone from Sky News. Warfare is changing and now we're all on the front line. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. episode please leave us a review on itunes
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.